0: May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Thomas Wolfe, in his novel *Old School*, tells this story about this unknown, uh, unnamed student at a private boarding school on the Eastern Seaboard. It's the 1960s, and everything is a kind of a buzz with the election of JFK. But all these students can think about at this little boarding school is academics literature really the story is obviously written in a, in a different era and it's obviously fiction because I know some high schoolers and that's normally not what they think about but they are kind of caught up into this and and the reader kind of gets gets kind of caught up in the purity of intention that these students really are um, you know fascinated by literature and they you know their their lips are dripping with poetry and their mind is saturated with prose and, and they think about stories and poems and all that sort of stuff. And this school has a particular contest every year. Every year, some um, famous uh, writer is coming to the school, and and there's a writing contest with the students, and the student who wins gets gets a private audience with this writer. And Wolf says, in the first year, it's Robert Frost. And so all the students begin to write poetry, and they're you know they're they're cranking out poems. And we have this this narrator. He, you never know his name. He's he's um you know he's he's a student at the school, and he writes about all his friends. And the first one he he makes this great poem. He comes up with this with this spectacular poem. But one of his friends turns in a poem himself. It's called First Frost, and it was a it was it was a sappy attempt to get Robert Frost's attention. But here's the thing. Frost thinks it's satire, not not honor. He thinks he's making fun of him. And so he actually chooses the poem, First Frost, as the winner. And our hero just kind of languishes. Oh no, you know, I was that close. Mine was so much better. And this guy was cheesy, and he wins. He didn't get what he wanted. But the next year, Ayn Rand comes to campus. And so, having never read Ayn Rand, he picks up The Fountainhead, he reads Atlas Shrugged, he's, he's all reading about this and, and caught up in the, in the Ayn Rand movement, and, and wouldn't you know it, Some student who has absolutely no real literary skill, all he can think about is animals and science fiction, and he somehow combines a story about a cow uh, that was captured up in a a spaceship or something like that. And Ayn Rand picks it because she thinks it's a clever metaphor. And she uh, gives an interview to the school newspaper. What a wonderful metaphor that challenges the collectivist orthodoxy and its tyrannical hold on the intellectual life of this country. And nothing could have been further from the truth. And so our hero, ooh, frustrated again. So close. So I mean, his story was so much better than this cheesy cow in a spaceship. But he doesn't win. The third guest is the biggest prize of all. Ernest Hemingway is coming to campus, and you'll have to read the book to find out how this one ends. <laughs> I couldn't help reading this book though, and feel for this boy. You know, he's a, he's a scholarship boy at this boarding school. He, 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 he's always on the outside looking in. He, he feels like he's marginalized in all that he does. And every time he, he, he's about to get this, about to win the prize, it's like it slips right through his fingers. I, and I remember this old Kentucky farmer used to say, just about the time your ship comes in, someone goes and moves the harbor. You know, this is his life. You know, have you ever felt like that? Just, a, just about the time. You're almost there. And something happens. Frustrating. You ever felt like that? You know, it, it, if only I could win this contest. If only I could meet the right person. If only my children would behave like my minister's children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if only my husband would treat me with dignity. And If only my wife would understand me. If only our rector would preach shorter sermons. Watch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, it, 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 have you ever been? You know, if a friend came to you and said, well, "What do you want?" I know what I want. I I want this, and you put your finger right on it. In Jesus' day, the religious people knew what they wanted. The people who 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 wanted to worship God knew what they wanted. They wanted one thing. They wanted the Romans out of Israel. Israel was an occupied nation. They, they only wanted one thing. If only these Romans were gone, we could worship God authentically. Life would be great. It would be wonderful. Only one thing. Just get rid of these Romans. And then Jesus comes along preaching. He does what preachers always do. He comforts the trouble and he troubles the comfortable. <laughs> That's our job, you know. Comfort the troubled And trouble the comfortable. And he starts telling these stories in this particular passage in Matthew's gospel. He tells three stories. The first one is about a dad who has two sons. Dad comes along and he tells his first son, I want you to go do something for me. And the boy says, no way, I'm not going to do it. And then later, the boy feels guilty about it. And he gets up and does what his dad asked. The dad goes to another son and he says, here, I want you to do this for me. And the boy says, oh, I'd be delighted to, father. Can't wait. Or something like that. And as soon as the dad walks away, he goes right back to doing what he was doing. Jesus said, you know what this story is really about? It's about the people here who like to look religious, but inwardly aren't really religious. They like to look the part, but inwardly have no real relationship with God. And it's these, they're standing in the crowd there, they don't like it. So he tells another story. This one's barely meant to butter them up. It's about tenant farmers. Tenant farmers, you know, they're renting a farm. They want to steal the entire harvest. The end of this story really is about this. These tenant farmers are trying to uh, take the, the harvest, just like these people who want to look religious are trying to hijack an authentic religion. Outwardly, they look the parts. Inwardly, they don't have any of it. He tells a third story. They're about to give Jesus a gold watch, by the way. And, um, and then he tells them this third story. It's about a royal wedding. And the king is about to have his daughter get married. And he sends out invitations to all these important people, and none of them want to come. And so he sends out invitations to other people. The common folk of the world. And the point of this third story is this. You know what? Those people who think they're ready to meet the king aren't ready to meet the king at all. And you know what? Now they're really angry with Jesus. Now the people in Jesus' world don't want to get rid of the Romans. (laughs) They have another goal in mind first. Before we get rid of the Romans, we need to get rid of this guy. And so they set up a trap. That's what you heard. That's the story you heard. They they tell Jesus. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the Caesar? They always try to tap trap uh, ministers. Uh, a preacher's always trying to trap in politics. Why do they go for us that way? It's always about. Po- is it okay to pay taxes? And Jesus does something very clever. He pulls out a coin. Now in the text, it says whose face is on it? The real word, the word in the original, whose image is on it? Whose icon? is on this coin. Who's I Well, it's Caesar's icon. Well, what's written upon it? Well, it's written upon it, August Caesar, Augustus Caesar, rather, uh, son of God, is what's written upon it. You see, this is the trap. If Jesus sides with the Romans, then the people aren't going to listen to him. If he sides with the people, then he's, he's in breach of the law and he may suffer death. for for treason against Rome. But he does something much more clever. He shows them, look, this is Caesar's image, give it back to him. And then he does something very, very clever. He says, and give back to God what God wants. When he says the word image, everyone hears an echo. They hear an echo of a passage you've probably heard in your lifetime. It comes from Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make humankind in our own image. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's image. Well, where is God's image? And then he does something else. And what's written upon it? Epigraphe, what's written upon it? This comes from another passage. As soon as he says this, everyone in the crowd hears Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within their hearts and I will write it upon their hearts. Epigraphy. I will write it upon their hearts. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Where's God's image? <laughs> What's written upon this? It belongs to Caesar. What has God written? You belong to me. See, Jesus has turned the tables on them. They, want, they know what they want. Maybe you know what you want. But what's the question here, really? What does God want? What does God want? He wants us. Not our money. Not our possessions. Not even our wants and wishes. He wants us. He wants just us. And all of us, I, I remember when I was a, a child, maybe you remember this too, do you remember making out your Christmas list? It's almost that time, you know. I, I, I remember being a boy, I was like, I would lay on the, um, on the floor in the living room, you know, watching Bugs Bunny, and have my, um, I would have my, uh, my Sears wish book open. Did you have one of those, you know, the big Sears catalog? And I'm in the toy section, and I'm, I'm paging through, and I've got a piece of paper. And my wish list was about all the things I wanted. You know, a fire truck or whatever. You know, I, I, this is what I want. Um, you know, and, and I would find a new one. Oh, I hadn't looked at that. That—that's a Tommy gun. I could really use one of those. You know, and, and I, would, I would go through this list. And, and you know, I knew I wasn't gonna get any of it. You know, we, we weren't—we weren't a family of means. But it didn't stop me from wishing. It didn't stop me from dreaming. It didn't stop me from stressing my mother out. Okay. It, it, but it was an opportunity just to think: What could I have? If, if only I could have what I wanted. As I've grown up and as you have, Christmas lists have changed, haven't they? Now you make out your Christmas list, and it's not the same as when you were a kid. What's on your Christmas list now is what you want to get for other people. No longer is about what I want, but what I want to give. And you've found, hopefully, somewhere along the way, that in giving you actually find something better than in getting that it actually brings more joy to give than it does to receive. I think I've heard that somewhere before, haven't you? And I think maybe this is why Jesus says, you know what? God wants something. He wants you to give Him your life. Because then you will get what you really want. Amen. Amen.